Letter eleven of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains by Isabella L. Bird. Letter eleven. It was another cloudless morning. One of the many here on which one awakes early, refreshed, and ready to enjoy the fatigues of another day. In our sunless, misty climate, you do not know the influence which persistent fine weather exercises on the spirits. I have been ten months in almost perpetual sunshine, and now a single, cloudy day makes me feel quite depressed. I did not leave till nine-thirty, because of the slipperiness and shortly after starting, turned off into the wilderness on a very dim trail. Soon seeing a man riding a mile ahead, I rode on and overtook him, and we rode eight miles together, which was convenient to me, as without him I should several times have lost the trail altogether. Then his fine American horse, on which he had only ridden two days, broke down, while my mad, bad bronco, on which I had been travelling for a fortnight, cantered lightly over the snow. He was the only traveller I saw in a day of nearly twelve hours. I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of that ride. I concentrated all my faculties of admiration and of locality, for truly the track was a difficult one. I sometimes thought it deserved the bad name given to it at Link's. For the most part, it keeps in sight of Terriol Creek, one of the large affluents of the Platte, and is walled in on both sides by mountains, which are sometimes so close together as to leave only the narrowest canyon between them, at others breaking wide apart, till after winding and climbing up and down for twenty-five miles, it lands one on a barren, rock-girdled park, watered by a rapid, fordable stream as broad as the ooze at Huntingdon snow-fed and ice-fringed, the park bordered by fantastic rocky hills, snow-covered and brightened only by a dwarf growth of the beautiful silver spruce. I have not seen anything hitherto so thoroughly wild and unlike the rest of these parts. I rode up one great ascent, where hills were tumbled about confusedly, and suddenly across the broad ravine, rising above the sunny grass and the deep green pines, rose in glowing and shaded red against the glittering blue heaven, a magnificent and unearthly range of mountains, as shapely as could be seen, rising into colossal points, cleft by deep blue ravines, broken up into shark's teeth, with gigantic knobs and pinnacles rising from their inaccessible sides, very fair to look upon a glowing, heavenly, unforgettable sight, and only four miles off. Mountains, they looked not of this earth, but such as one sees in dreams alone, the blessed ranges of the land which is very far off. They were more brilliant than those incredible colors in which painters array the fiery hills of Moab and the desert, and one could not believe them for ever uninhabited for on them rose, as in the east, the similitude of stately fortresses, not the grey castellated towers of feudal Europe, but gay, massive, Saracenic architecture, the outgrowth of the solid rock. They were vast ranges, apparently of enormous height, their colour indescribable, 
deepest and reddest near the pine-draped bases, then gradually softening into wonderful tenderness, till the highest summits rose all flushed, and with an illusion of transparency, so that one might believe that they were taking on the hue of sunset. Below them lay broken ravines of fantastic rocks, cleft and canyoned by the river, with a tender unearthly light over all, the apparent warmth of a glowing clime, while I on the north side was in the shadow among the pure unsullied snow. With us the damp, the chill, the gloom, with them the sunset's rosy bloom. The dimness of earth with me, the light of heaven with them. Here again worship seemed the only attitude for a human spirit, and the question was ever present. Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? I rode up and down hills laboriously in snowdrifts, getting off often to ease my faithful birdie by walking down ice-clad slopes, stopping constantly to feast my eyes upon that changeless glory, always seeing some new ravine, with its depths of color or miraculous brilliancy of red, or fantasy of form. Then below, where the trail was locked into a deep canyon, where there was scarcely room for it and the river, there was a beauty of another kind in solemn gloom. There the stream curved and twisted marvelously, widening into shallows, narrowing into deep boiling eddies, with pyramidal firs and the beautiful silver spruce fringing its banks, and often falling across it in artistic grace, the gloom chill and deep, with only now and then a light trickling through the pines upon the cold snow, when suddenly turning round, I saw behind, as if in the glory of an eternal sunset, those flaming and fantastic peaks. The effect of the combination of winter and summer was singular. The trail ran on the north side the whole time, and the snow lay deep and pure white, while not a wreath of it lay on the south side, where abundant lawns basked in the warm sun. The pitch-pine, with its monotonous and somewhat rigid form, had disappeared. The white pine became scarce, both being displayed by the slim spires and silvery-green of the miniature silver spruce. Valley and canyon were passed, the flaming ranges were left behind, the upper altitudes became grim and mysterious. I crossed a lake on the ice, and then came on a park surrounded by barren, contorted hills, overtopped by snow mountains. There, in some brushwood, we crossed a deepish stream on the ice, which gave way, and the fearful cold of the water stiffened my limbs for the rest of the ride. All these streams become bigger as you draw nearer to their source, and shortly the trail disappeared in a broad, rapid river, which we forded twice. The trail was very difficult to recover. It ascended ever in frost and snow, amidst scanty timber dwarfed by cold and twisted by storms, amidst solitudes such as one reads of in the high Alps. There were no sounds to be heard but the crackle of ice and snow, the pitiful howling of wolves, and the hoot of owls. The sun to me had long set. The peaks which had blushed were pale and sad. The twilight deepened into green, but still excelsior. There were no happy homes with light of household fires. Above, the spectral mountains lifted their cold summits. 
As darkness came on, I began to fear that I had confused the cabin to which I had been directed with the rocks. To confess the truth, I was cold, for my boots and stockings had frozen on my feet, and I was hungry, too, having eaten nothing but raisins for fourteen hours. After riding thirty miles, I saw a light a little way from the track, and found it to be the cabin of the daughter of the pleasant people with whom I had spent the previous night. Her husband had gone to the plains, yet she, with two infant children, was living there in perfect security. Two peddlers, who were peddling their way down from the mines, came in for a night's shelter soon after I arrived. Ill-looking fellows enough. They admired Bertie in a suspicious fashion, and offered to swap their pack-horse for her. I went out the last thing at night, and the first thing in the morning to see that the pony was safe, for they were very importunate on the subject of the swap. I had before been offered a hundred fifty dollars for her. I was obliged to sleep with the mother and children, and the peddlers occupied a room within hours. It was hot and airless. The cabin was papered with the phrenological journal, and in the morning I opened my eyes on the very best portrait of Dr. Canlish I ever saw, and grieved truly that I should never see that massive brow and fantastic face again. Mrs. Link was an educated and very intelligent young woman. The peddlers were Irish Yankees, and the way in which they traded was as amusing as Sam Slick. They not only wanted to swap my pony, but to trade my watch. They trade their souls, I know. They displayed their wares for an hour, with much dexterous flattery and persuasiveness. But Mrs. Link was untemptable, and I was only tempted into buying a handkerchief to keep the sun off. There was another dispute about my route. It was the most critical day of my journey. If a snowstorm came on, I might be detained in the mountains for many weeks but if I got through the snow and reached the Denver wagon road, no detention would signify much. The peddlers insisted that I could not get through, for the road was not broken. Mrs. L. thought I could, and advised me to try. So I saddled Bertie and rode away. More than half of the day was far from enjoyable. The morning was magnificent, but the light too dazzling, the sun too fierce. As soon as I got out, I felt as if I should drop off the horse. My large handkerchief kept the sun from my neck, but the fierce heat caused soul and sense, brain and eye, to reel. I never saw or felt the like of it. I was at a height of twelve thousand feet, where, of course, the air was highly rarefied, and the snow was so pure and dazzling that I was obliged to keep my eyes shut as much as possible to avoid snow-blindness. The sky was a different and terribly fierce color, and when I caught a glimpse of the sun, he was white and unwinking like a lime-ball light, yet threw off wicked scintillations. I suffered so from nausea, exhaustion, and pains from head to foot, that I felt as if I must lie down in the snow. It may have been partly to the early stage of Soroche, or mountain sickness. We plodded on for four hours, snow all around, and nothing else to be seen but an ocean of glistening peaks against the sky of infuriated blue. How I found my way, I shall never know, for the only marks on the snow were occasional footprints of a man, 
and I had no means of knowing whether they led in the direction I ought to take. Earlier, before the snow became so deep, I passed the last great haunt of the magnificent mountain bison, but unfortunately saw nothing but horns and bones. Two months ago, Mr. Link succeeded in separating a calf from the herd, and has partially domesticated it. It is a very ugly thing at seven months old, with a thick beard and a short, thick, dark mane on its heavy shoulders. It makes a loud grunt like a pig. It can outrun their fastest horse, and it sometimes leaps over the high fence of the corral, and takes all the milk of the five cows. The snow grew seriously deep. Bertie fell thirty times, I am sure. She seemed unable to keep up at all, so I was obliged to get off and stumble along in her footmarks. By that time, my spirit for overcoming difficulties had somewhat returned, for I saw a lie of country which I knew must contain South Park, and we had got under cover of a hill which kept off the sun. The trail had ceased. It was only one of those hunter's tracks which continually misled one. The getting through the snow was awful work. I think we accomplished a mile in something over two hours. The snow was two feet eight inches deep, and once we went down in a drift, the surface of which was rippled like sea-sand, Bertie up to her back, and I up to my shoulders. At last we got through, and I beheld, with some sadness, the goal of my journey. The great divide, the snowy range, and between me and it, South Park a rolling prairie seventy-five miles long and over ten thousand feet high, treeless, bounded by mountains, and so rich in sun-cured hay that one might find fancy that all the herds of Colorado could find pasture there. Its chief center is the rough mining town of Fair Play, but there are rumors of great mineral wealth in various quarters. The region has been rushed, and mining camps have risen at Alma and elsewhere so lawless and brutal that vigilance committees are forming as a matter of necessity. South Park is closed, or nearly so, by snow during the ordinary winter, and just now the great freight wagons are carrying up the last supplies of the season, and taking down women and other temporary inhabitants. A great many people come up here in the summer. The rarefied air produces great oppression on the lungs, accompanied with bleeding. It is said that you can tell a new arrival by seeing him go about holding a blood-stained handkerchief to his mouth. But I came down upon it from regions of ice and snow, and the snow which had fallen on it had all disappeared by evaporation and drifting. It looked to me quite lowland and livable, though lonely and indescribably mournful. A silent sea, suggestive of the muffled oar. I cantered across the narrow end of it, delighted to have got through the snow, and when I struck the Denver stage-road, I supposed that all the difficulties of mountain travel were at an end. But this has not turned out to be exactly the case. A horseman shortly joined me and rode with me, got me a fresh horse, and accompanied me for ten miles. He was a picturesque figure, and rode a very good horse. He wore a big slouch hat, from under which a number of fair curls hung nearly to his waist. His beard was fair, his eyes blue, and his complexion ruddy. There was nothing sinister in his expression, 
and his manner was respectful and frank. He was dressed in a hunter's buckskin suit, ornamented with beads, and wore a pair of exceptionally big brass spurs. His saddle was very highly ornamented. What was unusual was the number of weapons he carried. Besides a rifle, laid across his saddle, and a pair of pistols in the holsters, he carried two revolvers and a knife in his belt, and a carbine slung behind him. I found him what is termed good company. He told me a great deal about the country and its wild animals, with some hunting adventures, and a great deal about Indians and their cruelty and treachery. All this time, having crossed South Park, we were ascending the Continental Divide by what I think is termed the Breckenridge Pass, on a fairly good wagon-road. We stopped at a cabin, where the woman seemed to know my companion, and, in addition to bread and milk, produced some venison steaks. We rode on again, and reached the crest of the divide, and saw snow-borne streams starting within a quarter of a mile from each other, one for the Colorado and the Pacific, the other for the Platte and the Atlantic. Here I wished the hunter good-bye, and reluctantly turned northeast. It was not wise to go up the divide at all, and it was necessary to do it in haste. On my way down I spoke to the woman at whose cabin I had dined, and she said, I am sure you found Comanche Bill a real gentleman. And I then knew that, if she gave me correct information, my intelligent, courteous companion was one of the most notorious desperadoes of the Rocky Mountains, and the greatest Indian exterminator on the frontier. A man whose father and family fell in a massacre at Spirit Lake by the hands of Indians, who carried away his sister, then a child of eleven. His life has since been mainly devoted to a search for this child, and to killing Indians wherever he can find them. After riding twenty miles, which made the distance for that day fifty, I remounted Bertie to ride six miles farther, to a house which had been mentioned to me as a stopping-place. The road ascended to a height of eleven thousand feet, and from thence I looked my last at the lonely, uplifted prairie sea. Denver Stage Road the worst, rudest, dismallest, dark road I have ever yet travelled on, nothing but a winding ravine, the Platte Canyon, pine-crowded and pine-darkened, walled in on both sides for six miles by pine-skirted mountains twelve thousand feet high. Along this abyss for fifty miles there are said to be only five houses, and were it not for miners going down and freight-wagons going up, the solitude would be awful. As it was, I did not see a creature. It was four when I left South Park, and between those mountain walls and under the pines it soon became quite dark, a darkness which could be felt. The snow which had melted in the sun had refrozen, and was one sheet of smooth ice. Bertie slipped so alarmingly that I got off and walked, but then neither of us could keep our feet, and in the darkness she seemed so likely to fall upon me that I took out of my pack the man's socks which had been given me at Perry's Park, and drew them on over her forefeet. An expedient which for a time succeeded admirably, and which I commend to all travellers similarly circumstanced. It was unutterably dark, and all these operations had to be performed by the sense of touch only. 
I remounted, allowed her to take her own way, as I could not even see her ears, and though her hind legs slipped badly, we contrived to get along through the narrowest part of the canyon, with a tumbling river close to the road. The pines were very dense, and sighed and creaked mournfully in the severe frost, and there were other eerie noises not easy to explain. At last, when the socks were nearly worn out, I saw the blaze of a camp-fire, with two hunters sitting by it on the hillside, and at the mouth of a gulch something which looked like buildings. We got across the river partly on ice, and partly by fording, and I found that this was the place where, in spite of its somewhat dubious reputation, I had been told that I could put up. A man came out in the sapient and good-natured stage of intoxication, and the door being opened, I was confronted by a rough bar and a smoking, blazing kerosene lamp without a chimney. This is the worst place I have put up at as to food, lodging, and general character. An old and very dirty log cabin, not chinked, with one dingy room used for cooking and feeding, in which a miner was lying very ill of fever. Then a large roofless shed with a canvas side, which is to be an addition, and then the bar. They accounted for the disorder by the building operations. They asked me if I were the English lady written of in the Denver News, and for once I was glad that my fame had preceded me, as it seemed to secure me against being quietly put out of the way. A horrible meal was served. Dirty, greasy, disgusting. A celebrated hunter, Bob Craig, came in to supper with a young man in tow, whom, in spite of his rough hunter's or miner's dress, I at once recognized as an English gentleman. It was their campfire which I had seen on the hillside. This gentleman was lording it in true caricature fashion, with a Lord Dundreary drawl and a general execration of everything. While I sat in the chimney corner, speculating on the reason why many of the upper class of my countrymen, high-toners, as they are called out here, make themselves so ludicrously absurd. They neither know how to hold their tongues, or to carry their personal pretensions. An American is naturally assumptive, an Englishman personally so. He took no notice of me till something passed which showed him I was English, when his manner at once changed into courtesy, and his drawl was shortened by a half. He took pains to let me know that he was an officer in the guards, of good family, on four months' leave which he was spending in slaying buffalo and elk, and also that he had a profound contempt for everything American. I cannot think why Englishmen put on these broad, mouthing tones, and give so many personal details. They retired to their camp, and the landlord, having passed into the sodden, sleepy stage of drunkenness, his wife asked if I should be afraid to sleep in the large, canvas-sided, unsealed, doorless shed as they could not move the sick miner. So I slept there on a shakedown, with the stars winking overhead through the roof, and the mercury showing thirty degrees of frost. I never told you that I once gave an unwary promise that I would not travel alone in Colorado unarmed, and that in consequence I left Estes Park with a sharps revolver, loaded with ball cartridge, in my pocket, which has been the plague of my life. Its bright, ominous barrel peeped out in quiet Denver shops, 
Children pulled it out to play with, or when my riding-dress hung up with it in the pocket, pulled the hole from the peg to the floor, and I cannot conceive of any circumstances in which I could feel it right to make any use of it, or in which it could do me any possible good. Last night, however, I took it out, cleaned and oiled it, and laid it under my pillow, resolving to keep awake all night. I slept as soon as I lay down, and never woke till the bright morning sun shone through the roof, making me ridicule my own fears and abjure pistols for ever. I. L. B. End of Letter 11